bandwidth for the Weird Things podcast provided by Wired Tree. For sites of any size and world-class customer service, head on over to wiredtree.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Weird Things podcast. I'm Andrew Maine, joined by Mr. Justin Robert Young. Uh, hello, friends. Who uh, wasn't here last week because he was too good for us and was in Maui. I was in uh, Maui, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's a place in Hawaii, and uh, it's not conducive to thinking. And here to talk Justin into bringing the crazy little tiki idol back to the island before the curse brings great tragedy upon us all is Mr. Brian Brushwood. Man, I have an inordinate affinity for that Brady Bunch goes to Hawaii movie, man. It's like, it really, it really stuck with me and I loved it and I don't know why. And you know what? You know what? They tried that with other properties. Did you ever see the family ties gets wrapped up in an international spy adventure in England? Oh, I get go to europe i vaguely yeah. remember that yeah yeah and it's like it starts off and then uh, and then you know michael j fox discovers microfilm and all of a sudden it's a full-on like action movie with the family ties gang yeah. now is that just like the the producers are powerful enough and they've been a cash cow enough that they just want to take the the show out so everybody kind of gets a little mini vacation while they're shooting like is that the deal no i think i think it's just they need something is it sweeps I, uh, yeah, exactly. They, they need something big to do, and you want to use a bankable – basically, you have a menu, right? We're like, we need to do something big, and you look at the menu, and you, you look at the list of ideas, and you just sort of mix and match like uh, Family Ties, well, we, International Spy Thriller. We can go to space, or we can go to Hawaii, or we can you know have a uh, spy thriller. Yeah, and the first half of that Family Ties one, if I remember right, it was basically European vacation just with the Family Ties gang, like hilarious misunderstandings and stuff. And then, uh, like, he had to learn to play rugby and got his ass handed to him or something. Gotcha. They're like, uh, you know, we got this uh, George Clooney guy uh, who we could, you know, bring in more, but remember him? Yeah. Family Ties? What's he ever going to? No, no, no. He was Facts of Life, right? Yeah. Um. I think he did. It was on. It was Facts of Life. Did he ever do Family Ties? No, I think Fam was. Where was Leo? Leonardo DiCaprio was on. Uh, I don't know. There was the the, the dumb. He might have been on Growing Pains, actually. The, yeah. Uh, wait. Uh, okay. So the dumb boyfriend on Family Ties, I seem to remember, turned in who was dating Justine Bateman in the in the show. I seem to remember turned out to be someone famous. I yeah, definitely no, know. I was thinking George Clooney for Facts. I was still back in Facts of Life. Yeah. Yes. Um, but I wonder because I mean he he popped up in a lot of places. That um, also messed me up trying to understand how like Mrs. Garrett like had multiple adventures and the whole crossover. She played the same character on different shows. That that threw me for a loop. Dude, I was always happy to see Mrs. Garrett. Man, um, <laughs> <laughs> did you have like a sexual awakening looking at her? It was you know an awakening of, of sorts. It was, it's, you know, I'm glad we very quickly like, got this into weird things territory. Exactly, I know, I know. <laughs> Discussing Andrew's stirrings as a youngster. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, anyhow, gentlemen. <laughs> yes, sir. We're going to get a little weird here? Yeah, weird dude, yeah. Really feeling it. So, uh, you know, we've talked about this before. We stopped dreaming. We just stopped dreaming. <laughs> yes. We we used to uh, we used to spend a lot of money to go to space, and now we only spend a little bit of money to go to space, and that's and we that's, just don't dream anymore. That's evidence that we um, don't care. 
you know, tell that to NASA's Harold Sonny White, who works at the NASA Advanced Propulsion Labs, who is the guy that's talked a lot about, you know, the possibility of trying to develop a warp drive, which may be impossible, but all I know is this guy's a physicist, and I'm not, and he's working for a semi-legitimate organization with smart people, and he hasn't been fired yet. Well, and, and he's talked a lot. What's that? I, well, I mean, and, and it's like, uh, I mean, that's how it always begins, right? As a tinker project. That's why Google does the 20% time where it's like, just do whatever nutty stuff. Yeah. And there, you know, it could be a thing where it's just fundamentally impossible, but you know, he's been trying to, he and uh, another researcher, uh, pull up the name, uh, uh, Jude, another researcher by the name of Jude, they've been trying to develop an interferometer. So basically to try to do experiments and warp drives and stuff, but he, and uh, an artist just came out with their concepts for what a warp, a real warp drive spaceship could look like. All right. And so, so let's imagine I'm an idiot. Uh, spell out to me. <laughs> just just why, hypothetically. Just hypothetically. Let's say I'm a bearded moron right. who ain't got no sense, no how, knows nothing. Uh, explain to me the problems in terms of our, our understanding of energy and physics. Wait, real, uh, real quick, real the, quick. The, the, let me the just, problems with the warp drive. I feel like I feel like just I need to engage you fully as the everyman, so let me show you this mock-up. Uh, looks freaking amazing. It really does look like a, a danged Enterprise. And it's yeah, it, called it, the it, Enterprise on there. Yeah, like the, yeah, the XDS or something, XS1 or whatever. So it's very sexy looking. And cool. So here's the problem with warp drive right now. It's impossible. Right. Okay. Other than that, there is a guy named uh, uh, Michael Alcuberi, can never pronounce his name right, came up with a theoretical way in which you could move something through space by basically shortening the distance by using exotic matter and other things I don't really understand and basically create a little mini bubble that can move from one place to kind of like – if space was a sheet, like a rubber band sheet on how to sort of expand everything in back of you and bunching up in front of you, and then all of a sudden, boom, you've traveled considerably far. Yeah. The, big, the biggest hurdle that gets in the way from you get it from point A to point B and you go really – is that if you're going faster than the speed of light, that's kind of would seem to be an impossibility and there's a, violates the law of causality. There's reasons to think that anytime information tries to go faster than the speed of light in our universe, all these quantum effects come in and destroy it and it just can't happen. But you do have things like, you know, space is warped. Space is very, very warped. And you have things like gravitational lensing where you look at a galaxy that's in front of another galaxy and you can see the galaxy behind it because it actually warps that around it. And if you took one path, it would be longer than the other path. And that's what we get to the heart of it is that you can have shorter paths from point A to point B by following different routes, depending on how you know space is warped, and basically this is a way to try to warp space and allow you to get from to travel doing that. We don't know if it'll work. The first experiment that that White's trying to do is build an interferometer, which is basically to see if they can see like micro, testimonially small, infinitesimally small little distortions in space time, and if they can see that, then that leads them to think that it may be possible to control these or manipulate them and to scale that up to something that could make it possible to actually send things via warp drive now it may be it may not violate the law of causality because the problem they say well if you have a warp field or warp drive or anything you could also do time travel because all you have to do is x but it might be you're able to go to one place and back this way but you can't 
violate time travel because the moment you try to do that, some other effect comes into play. Yeah. I don't know if that has satisfied any of your questions at all. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, to the ca- causality question, you might be able to, to walk me through this. Uh, why would it not violate causality if you went faster than light? Remember, you're not, you're technically, you- you're not going faster than light. You're taking you just- a shorter path. Okay. Got it. If you're trying to build a, because the, the thing is that people say if you have a shorter path, if you have a warp tunnel, you could put one in the past and then one in the future and then go from the future into the past if you had sort of the tunnel thing. What this would say is basically like if you, you know, brought the mouths close to each other or whatever, it would actually be tunneling through time. But if you accept that space is already de- bumpy and warpy and all that, that as long as you're not trying to build your time tunnel out of it, you're just getting from point A to point B, but you're not actually traveling back into the past of where you started from. That's actually a really good, a really good point. Um, man, I just feel like I'm on the outer fringes of comprehending a lot of the, the, the problems with this kind of stuff. But I guess the real thing is, uh, is, is it a waste of time at this point? I mean, we know for sure, not in our lifetimes, we're not going to see anything like this. Speak like, uh, uh, okay, that's true. Singularity. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't know what's possible. I know that White seemed to be kind of you know a little bit out there. I know Alcubierre is also skeptical of some of the stuff, but these guys are physicists. These are real physicists. These are guys that know a hell of a lot more than I know, mm-hmm. and they're having intelligent, interesting discussions about this. And but, I mean, I guess it certainly doesn't hurt to 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 build the equipment to at least make a map of where things are lumpy and close together and all those important things that. Well, this is more of like how to basically build a tabletop machine to see if you can create these little lumps or to create these sort of mini things. Because here's the thing is that my opinion is like, you know, all we want to be able to do is be able to send information, you know, fast, you know, the warp information. I want, I'm hesitating to use faster than light because, you know, basically it's not the same as the fact that something's three and a half light years away doesn't mean there couldn't be a shorter path to there. Right. Yeah. And, and finding that shorter path doesn't necessarily mean you're going, you beat time. But anyhow, my point is, is that like, you know, even being able to send small little needle sized device, you know, if we could send a needle to Alpha Centauri, you know, three and a half light years away, 10 years time, we could build enough technology in there to build a space probe mm-hmm. inside of something like that. You know, if we can get information back and forth in these long distances, that creates incredible opportunities. You know, we, you know, I, I think the future of interstellar transportation is going to be teleportation and not big, huge ships. So uh, I wonder. It, it seems to me like the big question, of course, is going to be the uh, the amount of energy required for all this. Because in uh, thinking in terms of metaphors, like if you're an ant that wants to get from one side of the bed to the other. Uh, you could just run really fast as an ant that would use a small amount of energy, but take, you know, three to five, you know, seconds or minutes or whatever. Or you could summon a giant human to, to bunch the bed sheets together such that the ant is able to walk across, you know, essentially from one side of the bed to the other. Uh, however, that uses several orders of magnitude more energy in order to cause that. And I have to imagine that something similar would be the case in space. I mean, I mean, well, I, and, and I know all metaphors are imperfect, of course, but but it just seems to yeah. me like like what kind of unfathomable energy must we be able to have to make this a practical, real thing? Well, that's one of the things that White worked on. And if you click on the link, there's a uh, a link. Gizmodo had an article, and you click back to an earlier link. They have quote the energy problem solved, 
Um, at one point, you know, when it first came out, they, they figured you need an exotic matter ball, ball the size of Jupiter. And wow. then White worked through this and figured out how to basically reduce that to something of 500 kilograms of, again, exotic matter, of which we're not quite sure if it's real or not. But the point is, is that the, the math has reduced the amount of energy you need considerably from humongous amounts of saying, if we make the wall of the bubble thinner, da, 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 things I don't understand. All I know is a really smart guy says, hey, no, we think this is actually could be doable. So, uh, yeah, well, and, and uh, you've heard me say this before. Uh, don't don't bet against mankind, you know, because yeah, yeah. we have a pretty that, good record. You know, and, and to your point earlier, Brian, about like, you know, like obviously we're not going to see this in our, our lifetime. I mean, probably, I guess, like statistically, but at the same time, you know, where were, you know, where were our expectations for society 100 years ago, you know? Like, did, did, was that, was like the moon on anybody's radar? Was the internet on anybody? I mean, like, how do you even explain the internet to somebody a uh, hundred years ago? I'll tell you what, man, I really think in terms of, um, I think that I could see a world where let's say you could at great expense essentially take, um, you know, like you said, a needle or whatever. Imagine a, a 3D self-replicating uh, collection of nanobots that are the size of a needle and embedded in that needle are also the downloaded memories and minds of a hundred explorers. And at extraordinary expense of energy, you're able to essentially teleport, but, but basically faster than light, you know, warp space to get it to Alpha Centauri or whatever. And then, you know, the, the humans who did that will live and die. And 3000 years later, the nanobots will have completed their programming. They will have built uh, a, a humanoid synthetic uh, vessels. They will, have, uh, they will have created a colony. They will have done all these things, and then they will download those consciousnesses into there. And then essentially, you know, and, and granted it's 3,000 years in real time or whatever, but essentially in the, cos- in the consciousness of everyone who's Im- embodying these avatars, suddenly to them it's like their brain got scanned on Earth – and now they're standing on the surface of this planet at Alpha Centauri. I, I actually think that's not the most outrageous thing we've considered on this show. I agree. I agree. I think, you know, there is a future where man lives and dies on Earth, and that's the end of it. And there's a future where man goes to other planets or extends or asks. I mean, like, you know, my belief is I think we'll, more people will be living off planets than on planets, but extends out into space and keeps going. And it's one or the other, you know, or some sort of descendant of man. Yeah. Hey, by the way, if you want to wrap your mind around a lot of this, this post-singularity, post-physical consciousness stuff, I highly recommend starting the, uh, the Commonwealth saga from Peter F. Hamilton that, uh, that Justin and Andrew turned me on to half a decade ago. It is amazing how sticky those ideas are, and it is a, a thick, rich action-adventure world where, with some mind-blowing uh, – you know, post-singularity ideas, but at the end of the day, all the characters are, are startlingly human mm-hmm. uh, at the end Even of the day. Even the AIs, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and all, all the tech is revolved around human need, you know, like in, in a way that's, that's really uh, fun and, and interesting and not just sort of like whiz-bang taped on add-ons. And a thing to think about, too, is like when you – if we start to build super intelligent AIs and whatever, um, the world they're going to have it won't necessarily be our world. You know, they're going to, you know, we're going to be on the fringes and they're going to be creating 
incredible quantum computing systems and things like that and inhabiting levels of complexity we couldn't even comprehend. And the idea that, you know, that they're going to be just territorial versions of us that we're going to have to fight, I don't really buy into as much for a lot of reasons, but I think ultimately is that, you know, we will eventually, they will look upon us as, as homo habilis. As, as, as well, oh, yeah, like basically like the past incarnation of, of our dumber our dumber fathers in the past. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, I've, I've got, uh, hold on, so I'll be right back. I'm going to visual A. Oh, look at that. Ladies and gentlemen, for those of you guys now watching live, Andrew Main just physically got up from his chair and walked, demonstrating that he is ambulatory. So I have here in my hand, I've shown this before, it's a Neanderthal hand axe. This is about a half million years old. Is, is that an authentic piece of... What? That's awesome. Uh, where, where did you get that? eBay, where else? Um, here's the thing to think about, Brian. Okay? Neanderthals have been around and been making things like this for a million years. Okay? So there's, there's a million-year-old version of this. A million-year-old version of this. Okay? So it's a little sharp little hand axe thing with a little stabby kind of thing. It fits in the hand. In a, there's a class. There's a great drawing that shows how similar it is in shape to a computer mouse. <laughs> um, so uh, a part of the reason why I thought they would be much more expensive, but they're not, is that Neanderthals have been making these things for a million years. Yep. You dig places in Europe. You dig in a lot of places. You will find these. They're not that rare because they've been making them for a million years. Right. And, and they, specifically, they're, they're like finding forks. Of our modern yeah. era, you know, they did not think about biodegradability. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, they they were not very environmentally conscious because this thing's half a million years old and has yet to degrade. So, Neanderthals. But the point I want to make is so Neanderthals, which is a species that we largely replaced, we incorporated some of their DNA. Those of us who our ancestors left Africa. This million, if I ran into a million-year-old Neanderthal, um, he may not have advanced language skills like we have. He may not have, you know, there are things, we, there are differences, like these were found, if you found a Neanderthal flint or hand axe, it was made within a few miles of where he was living. Right. He didn't trade with others like, you know, our Cro-Magnon, our Homo sapien ancestors did. Nonetheless, if we, if we met a Neanderthal today, we would generally try to treat them with compassion, given in, in, in our best of behavior. We would look upon them as, you know, primitive form, but we'd still probably have respect and benevolence towards them. You know, that would be the idea that we'd want. That'd be the ideal we'd want to live up to. And I would think that our computer and descendants will feel the same way. That uh, that Neanderthal uh, hand axe is amazing because uh, uh, the uh, as as you read in in uh, Matt Ridley's work, he talks about how they're identical for for half a million a million years uh, as as mankind and its cousins. Made them uh, because there's there's no innovation, no ingenuity, no development, no almost no conscious thought goes into them. It's equivalent to as as he puts it, the way a bird makes a nest. I mean, a a, a, bil, a, a, a bird builds a nest, and it's always the same nest, generation after generation mm-hmm. after generation, and that's how it was with the hand axes. And and as you mentioned, it wasn't until people started trading, and of course, the poetry of it being the same size. As as a mouse and meant to be held in the same hand the same way is that um, uh, similar to the what was it the parable of the uh, uh, pencil you know no one person knows how to make a mouse you know from the for, uh, nobody knows uh, the guy who runs the business doesn't know how to smelt the plastic and the guy who makes the plastic doesn't know how the refineries get it out of the water or out of the ground and all that stuff uh, it's really extraordinary the idea that this 
super consciousness has emerged purely out of self-interest in trade. And trade's the, the exchange of ideas. It's the, that's the wonderful point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the idea oh. – uh, ideas having sex is I think what he said. That's the quote mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's, uh, that, yeah. that works. So, gentlemen, this brings us into a interesting – you know, like what I love about science is like the science is never settled, folks. Never, never, never settled. When somebody says that, they're not speaking into scientific terms. They're speaking in political terms. And there are things – and not – scientists can disagree on quite a number of things. And uh, one of them is <laughs> – there's we're getting more research and data about the outside of beyond you know our solar system doesn't just end at pluto and just drop off part of the reason we decided to make pluto uh denigrate him from a planet to a dwarf was because beyond pluto we started seeing other things we sound we found other things that were nearly the same size which we'd have to share those planets to or whatever and we have a thing called the kuiper belt which goes on and on and on and way beyond there there's an Oort cloud we're starting to study more of these Kuiper Belt objects, and we found uh, another dwarf planet called VP2113, which just in March, which is another one of these things we found out there. And some of them, they have a very curious orbit. They're kind of aligned in that there's something they're sort of being pulled together in the same sort of frame or, or pattern, which they're too weak to be able to do that to each other. But then you'll find other objects in our solar system that are very massive that can do that. Um, you know, uh, for instance, like Neptune and Pluto, there's there's a drag that Neptune has on Pluto to sort of keep it in some sort of, you know, thing. And sometimes Neptune is further out than Pluto. But Neptune has enough of a force on Pluto to affect its path. So we're finding objects out beyond there that appear to have – they're too small to pull on each other, but they imply – there could be something else out there, all right? And we've gone back and forth, like, is there a planet X? Is there not? Now there's gravitational evidence to this, and there's some scientists have calculated they, they're going to be a world about 10 times the mass of the Earth, and it would be orbiting roughly 250 times the distance from the Earth to the sun. Now some other scientists have looked at this alignment, and they found uh, some additional puzzling patterns, small groups of objects that have similar patterns, but they're not mass enough to be tugging on each other, each other. And they think there may be one or two objects out there. Okay. So, so the reason that we haven't seen them is because they're so far out. So, so they're, they're super massive enough to actually cause a pull and, and disruption of, of what we expect to see in the orbits of, of all the inner planets. Uh, but they're far enough out that we can't just catch them in a telescope. Yeah, they're at, at 200 astronomical units. It's it's ridiculously far out there, and they would be reflecting so little light from the sun that you know to see them would be very extremely difficult. We'd have to be able to we'd have to calculate where they were going to be and aim a telescope there and hope that maybe it goes in front of some other object or something that would occlude it to be able to find out if it's there. So, so like we would like it's it's going to be dark. And it's so far out and so small that we'd have to have the math let us guess with such precision that we'd have to catch it like passing in front of, say, a particular star. star. So like for a split second at the expected moment, the star winks out for just a second and then comes back. Maybe. And, but again, not so small. They think this thing would have a mass between Mars and Saturn. Damn. That's okay. pretty small. 
I mean, like considering like I can't catch Saturn occluding in front of a star. I guess okay. they oh, can. You're, we're speaking relatively. I got you. Not, yeah. not objectively. It's yeah. Really- no, no, no. Like, like, I mean, that to me is some super precise math. So it's like, uh, what, uh, uh, how many astronomical units? Uh, let me do uh, God, I've been playing with Wolfram Alpha lately. I'm on that right now. Uh, and, and, and I love the fact that you can ask little things. Like, uh, like I'm doing stuff like um, – uh, like I'll ask, what is 250 days from now? And then it'll give me a date. That kind of stuff is super yes. valuable. Um, uh, For those dis- of you who aren't familiar, Wolfram Alpha is a computational search engine. And it basically you can type – like I typed in like what is 180 pounds weigh on Saturn? And that's the thing that kind of blows my mind is as massive it is because you're further out from the center. Like if, if 180 pounds on Saturn would weigh 190 – so, like, in this case, I wanted to know how many astronomical units it was uh, that, that Saturn already was to, to get a bearing of how many more 200 would be. So it says – I just wrote distance from Saturn, from Saturn from Sun, and it said Saturn to the distance of the Sun. It said 9.9 AU, so basically 10 AU. And for those of you who don't know, uh, an astronomical unit, an AU, is, is just the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So this thing is 20 times farther out than Saturn is right now, if, if it exists, right? And so, so think about how small Saturn is and how little light it blocks as it goes across the sky. You know, it's like it's blocking out like an individual star for, for you know, a right. second or whatever. Ready for me to blow your mind, though, Brian? Oh, geez, go for it. Can you handle this? Yeah. Voyager 1 uh, in 2006. I'm typing it in right now. <laughs> it was halfway there. Halfway to 200 to, to 20, uh, 200 AUs? Yep. Uh, wow. Let's see. Uh, let's see. Distance from Voyager 1 to the sun. How many? Uh, 100 AUs? Yep. That's amazing. Right now it's 128 AUs. So it says so. it as, oh, that's interesting. It gave me the answer. Uh, as miles, so I'll say in AUs. And uh, Wolfram Alpha hopefully understands it. Look at that. 128 astronomical units. God, Wolfram Alpha is magic, dude. The computational <laughs> understanding of the world. So we launched this thing. We launched Voyager 1, 1977. Okay? 1977, this thing was launched uh, four months after Star Wars came out. Uh, <laughs> you can tell my frame of reference. For everything. <laughs> uh, Voyager 1, 1977, halfway there. Well, halfway to where the orbital path could be of this thing. And that's to think that there could be there could be another hard now. We don't know if this this if one if it exists, this could be just a calculation calculation error. But if it exists, we don't know if it's a hard body or a soft body. But here's the interesting thing about our solar system is the biggest problem with our solar system is there are not enough hard bodies. You have Mars, which is the one that's most interesting. You have Venus, but Venus has like 180 long days. A day is like 180 of our days. So it's not rotating. It's, yeah, it's not really ideal for building anything. Venus is hotter than Mercury because of this. And, and Mercury has points of it that like almost you know get, get extremely cold or extremely hot. In Merc- they actually get snowfall on Mercury, which is crazy to think about, though. Wait, what kind of snowfall? Like water snowfall? Yeah, probably water vapor snowfall. What? Yeah. Um, uh, it reminds me of, uh, Justin, you remember in the um, 
uh, in the the Timothy Zahn trilogy, uh, there's a mining uh, uh, operation on a planet like Mercury, close enough yeah. to the sun that the whole they just continuously build tracks, and the entire city moves to stay in the twilight zone, the habitable exactly. habitable zone, the entire time. Uh, yeah, no, no, that's that's an awesome an awesome conceit. So, so you get ice on Mercury, and then anyhow, point is. Uh, there's just, you know, you can land on, if, if the, all the other planets, you know, once you get beyond Mars, they're all gaseous planets. So there's not really a surface to land on. You could land on, if you built barges or something floated there, you know, you would get along fine on Saturn if you just sat on a barge and it was in a bubble or something that floated there or whatever, because the gravity, you know, although it's massive, it's wet, so much more massive than the earth. It's so much spread out across a distance, the pull of the gravity is lessened, you know, on that surface of that. Would, would it be possible to construct a, let's say, a city in a bubble? Out that, of Legos, yes. Uh, that, that, that happens to have the right density, and you'd have to be very strict about what you allowed into the city and whatnot, that, that could just bob and just float uh, like a helium balloon, like the whole city... Uh, assuming, I mean, imagine, um, um, you know, magical material that, 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 mm-hmm. you know, could handle any amount of vacuum or pressure. Like, I guess you could, you could create some kind of pressure inside roughly equivalent to earth. You could build a city inside. And I bet if you dropped it in, you could theoretically have it just bob and float on the, on the, I'll, I'll use air quotes for surface of Saturn or Jupiter at a level that, uh, that, uh, that it could just sit there without um, without constant energy or thrust upward. If if you yeah, you know, um one of my favorite mad geniuses, Buckminster Fuller, talked about the idea of building using making massive, 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 massive balloons, you know, kilometer across using some strong material, but the beauty is that it doesn't have to be as super strong as we think it does because of, of the uh tensegrity, because the bigger it gets, the more load it can compare can hold. If you filled it with air and it was just one or two degrees above the air outside of it, you could have a floating city. And the bigger you made the bubble, the more mass it could carry. Wow. And, you know, that's a thing that is at this point in technology, we can we can in the laboratory, we can look at materials we think we might be able to use to build it. But remember, we talked about on the last podcast, we talked about the all aluminum blimp that was made in the 1920s. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and and if somebody described that today, like, I'm going to make a blimp all out of aluminum, be like, I don't think it would work. Like, no, no, the math works out and somebody already did it. And so, yeah. Yes, and in fact, it worked out better and was more reliable than than, uh, you know, the the other systems of the time with the fabric. Yeah. So the answer question, like, yeah, sure. I think if the materials are there, probably be able to. And because the only the only planet in the entire solar system where you would feel like way too heavy would be Jupiter. Other than that, um, you know. Saturn, Neptune, Uranus, no problem. Pluto, very little gravity. But out beyond, if there was a hard body out there, and if you have a planet way out there, even though it's so far away from the sun, it doesn't mean – there may be more planets, by the way, drifting between stars than actually orbiting stars. It doesn't mean it couldn't have life too because you could have geothermal activity. In the geothermal activity, you could have liquid, you could have ice caps, and you could have geothermal vents heating up the water, and that could be going on and on and on. And you know, you start reading like how long, what would happen if the Earth drifted away from the sun, and there will be heat here. I mean, on a surface, not so much, but there will be heat in places for millions of years. Does does that preclude the chance of of 
uh, and we talked about this before, like environmentally, uh, let's say you did encounter life, like, like, is there almost no chance that it would be intelligent life? Because it seems like it takes a long time to cook up intelligent life, uh, both, you know, because of structural things and, and just the amount of time. I mean, it took us, it took us, you know, four, I don't know, like what, 98% of our entire Earth's history before we got around to making us. Yeah, and, and, and that's the problem too, is you want to, we start trying to qualify it. And we, you know, looking back, we had 100,000 years ago, okay, let's say 80,000 years ago, as, as uh, we left Africa, some of us, some of us said, listen, it's kind of cool here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bro, you go ahead, you do you, I'm chilling. Yeah. I've heard about those Neanderthal chicks, good luck. <laughs> um, uh, anyhow, um, 80,000 years ago, you know, 100,000 years ago, like, yeah, let's go back, let's go back like even further, like, you know, when we're still, like 200,000 years ago in Africa, you had on Earth, you had Neanderthals, fully developed hominid that had separated from us a long, long time ago. You had, uh, you know, the, the antecessor Homo sapien, or call them Cro-Magnon. You had living somewhere, you had Denisovians, which were offshoot simulated to the Neanderthal. You had maybe the, the was it like the Red Deer Cave people in China. You had, uh, there's a group called S, which we know almost not, nothing about. You had the little hobbit people in, in Java. So there's six different humanoid races living at the same time 200,000 years ago, roughly. Six that we know of. And here's the thing I'm going to blow your mind with. You ready for your mind to be blown, I'm, Brian? I'm, I'm prepared for That's a mind blowing. You ready for your mind to be blown? Yep, yep. Do any of you know what the fossil record is like for chimpanzees? Uh, I, I would imagine just as good as for humans, maybe longer. You see them out longer. Uh, I guess there are cousins, so they probably. I'm, I'm going to say they're parallel to ours. I'm going to say they're the same. I Brian, agree. A, Justin, I agree with Brian. <laughs> there is almost no fossil record for chimpanzees at all. Wow! Almost nothing. Why? You, well, we just found just a couple of years ago. We found like a jawbone or something, a 500,000 year old jawbone, which was considered a huge break because of the fact there just weren't any fossils of chimps chimps have lived in the same environment for the longest time forever and so basically i mean they've been in the same wet hot jungle and once you die there your bones get eaten and dissolved the way you don't get the chance to do that they haven't moved about they haven't moved anywhere and so you don't get that was, uh, you want like a hard pack kind of dirt uh landing on top of you to preserve it and and Spend forever. Yeah, and so there was an article that came out in Nature. This was in 2005. First chimp fossil unearthed. The first chimp fossil we have is from half a million years ago, and it's teeth, and it's the first evidence of looking at the split. Now we know it's not a it's not a conspiracy or anything like that. Part of the reason people go like, well, why didn't chimps change and adapt into us? Well, their grandparents did. You know, we shared the same grandparents. But when you don't leave your environment and it stays the same, why would you radically adapt? Uh, well, and so that's the, is, that's it, the, is it also that the 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 areas in which they've lived have not themselves changed? Yeah, exactly. Like that that, they, that they, those stayed. And, yeah. Well, and and so, that's the whole thing about like that hand axe. There's a reason we have we have a, a half million, a million years of of you know ancient hand axes built because that's that's what you needed to do ninety percent of that stuff. Yeah. So you know, it's one of those questions because we, we try to figure out they're so close yet they never they never got to hand axes, never got to that, and it just. You know, we had – there are a number of events that happened to humans that almost wiped us out. But each time we came back from that, 
we were even more resilient. Like there was like I think 80,000 years ago, there was a mega drought in Africa that trapped us in a very, very narrow band where there was ended up where there was only 2,000 Homo sapiens left. Just 2,000, okay? And we can trace genetically through genetics, we can find this narrow band of time in which we almost were gone. There were more chimpanzees at that time. There were more orangutans. There were, you know, could have been more gigantopithecus. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me wrap my mind around this. Like this is this is before, before people were walking across the land bridge, you know, mm-hmm. to to North America and all that stuff. Like, like at the very genesis of of what we would now call our species, mm-hmm. uh, Homo sapiens, we were essentially worse off than several endangered species nowadays. There are fewer of us than there are blue whales at, at the highest point of their extinction level. Wow. Wow. So it was 135,000 and 90,000 years ago, 10,000 years off. Okay. So we can look there and we can see that, uh, that how narrow the population gate. And it's one of those things when anthropologists look at this, it's this, it's this scary realization of just how close we came to being wiped out entirely. And after that period, you know, the, the ones that survived, the ones that made it were probably the ones that said, you know what, and things start to suck, move. And there's a reason why shortly thereafter, once we, you know, there was, there was the trying to cross, you know, cross the water into, you know, you know, then what was you know, no longer, you know, your tropical Sahara and all that and to go into, you know, lower Asia, et cetera, was a big jump. But then we did it and then we spread. We came across these dudes who've been living in Europe for a million years making these things and were statically arrested. We kept spreading all the way over into the Americas, et cetera. And it was like, but once we once we made it past that point. So my point is like we don't we know of six different hominid species, you know, roughly that it coexists with mankind that are all gone now, all gone, not all because of us. We don't know how many more there were because we can't find chimp fossils. What other fossils Man. can't we find? What other things have existed? And maybe there were intelligence, but back to your early question about would we find intelligent life elsewhere? None of these other creatures were able to do what we did. And it may become we just had a collection of genes that allowed us to trade and exchange ideas, which is such a – it's not the novel or the trivial thing that people may think that it is because Neanderthal, like we said, spent a million years, same thing over and over again, did not adapt, did not create much anything new. This thing isn't that much more sophisticated than what Lucy was using, Yeah, you know, three and a half million years well, ago. And, and to point it out, uh, you know, people, you know, traditionally the role of science is to explain increasingly how unspecial humans are over other animals. But there is one way uh, where the research shows increasingly that we are way, way special in that there is not a single other species of animal. There, there are plenty of animals that will... Uh, that will have habits of reciprocation, scratch my back, uh, eat my ticks, I'll eat yours, that kind of stuff. They are, uh, in, in monkeys, you get social, uh, you know, repayment for stuff that people will do a thing to get, uh, you know, a, a favor or, or a favor to be named later. But, uh, in no case, is there any animal that willingly gives up something it actively wants for the potential of something that it wants even more? There's, if, if a chimp is hungry, and it's got, you know, one grape, it will not give it up for, for two, you know, I don't know, honey uh, crackers or whatever, something that it, that, it, that it would ostensibly like more. It can't, it can't give up that one thing. There's uh, a great example in descriptions like you'll see chimps. Chimps hunt together. They cooperate in a lot of ways. They'll, they'll hunt other monkeys, by the way, and eat them. Um, they do a lot of these interesting behaviors together as groups and communicate extremely well, more so than we realized. 
Um, and they, they absolutely do cooperate, but you won't see two one chimp help another chimp pick up a two by four. You know, they, basically. Well, no, 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 wait, wait, and specifically, the difference is uh, a, a a chimp appear. Uh, all animals appear to lack the ability to project themselves in the future and give up something they want very badly now, knowing that they will receive something that they want even more. No, nobody's able to do that uh, uh, besides human. Yeah, humans. <clears throat> Uh, somebody pointed out, like, cave paintings in Australia 50,000 years ago. Absolutely. That shows you once, you know, 80,000 years ago, whatever, when we left Africa and spread, how quickly people spread around. And remember, the world looked very different then. There was a lot more things were connected. You had, you know, you know Tasmania and uh, Australia and, you know, the South Pacific, et cetera, these things. It was a lot easier to move, get through there if you weren't, you know, seafaring. But the point is, this amazing thing happened, and then there was – spread and then you know then we were still we entered another kind of a sort of a ice age where things got frozen up for a considerable amount of time that we didn't come out of until eight thousand years ago and uh i don't know if you guys know about this i this is i'm gonna go way off with uh way off on a tangent here tangent here um because the most fascinating uh archaeological thing happening right now is is only about 10 years old and it is rewriting everything we know about civilization, the formation of civilization, etc. One of the biggest problems in archaeology is we tend to look where it's convenient to look. There's going to be a lot of fascinating archaeological things that we can explore in Egypt, but they're underneath shopping malls. You yeah. know? And we go look in places and we know of a lot of archaeological sites in Europe. They're kind of interesting and things get built on top of other things. We don't know what's underneath there. Do you know about uh, Gobekli Tepe in Turkey? Uh, all right. Just spell oh, that Oh, Gobekli? Me. I know yeah. that, dude. Yeah. All right. I can't even pronounce it, okay? I'm going to send you the link. All right. It's, it's G-O with the two dots above it, B-E-K-L-I, then T-E-P-E, okay? Okay. And it's, it's Turkish for Potbelly Hill, all right? It's in the southeastern Anatolia region of Turkey, and... It is a archaeological site with ruins of p- giant pillars, some of them weighing up to 20 tons, that are fit into sockets. It's hewn from the bedrock. They find, you know, pre-Neolithic, pre-Neolithic you know, bee pottery. They find uh, rooms. They find it, this is a building structure. This is a very sophisticated building structure, and it's 12, 11 to 12,000 years old. It predates everything. It predates yeah. everything now. And we're just beginning to explore this, uh, what's going on there. And, and this was part of a, a very, very large civilization built this. This is a thing that theoretically predates agriculture. Um, well, and, and this is uh, – uh, to, to put it in perspective, so, so you're saying this is the oldest anything we've ever found is 12,000 years. Like this, this, this – we didn't find cities like this or things like that look like this for probably – Six or seven thousand more years. Uh, okay, this is and astonishing. This, was only, this is only discovered for what it is back in '94, according to Wikipedia. Yeah, '94 they started digging around it. And they started dating it to figure out when this thing was built. Wow. So uh, there was um, 
I, I listened to uh, 99% Invis- Invisible, which we've talked about on the show. Uh, it's a podcast about design work, and it talks about the unusual, difficult challenge of uh, there was a, a, a nuclear waste disposal facility where they needed to put a whole bunch of radioactive you know, gloves and tongs and, and radiation you know, byproducts from – uh, from making weapons or whatever. They put it in, uh, I want to say, the New Mexico desert. They put it down in the bottom of a salt mine where over you know, the next several thousand years, the salt will creep in and entomb everything. However, this stuff will stay radioactive for 200,000 uh, more years. So they got together a, a group of designers asking them to, how do you communicate something? Uh, you know, uh, how do we label this such that 10,000 years from now, people will still know that it's dangerous and radioactive down there. And, and there are some, some things that, you know, seemed obvious. Uh, for example, um, uh, you know, Carl Sagan uh, proposed that you make a skull and crossbones on there because everyone knows that that means death and that, that you draw a picture and it'll mean death. However, historically, the skull and crossbones, as the podcast points out, was originally uh, depicted as a skull and a cross made of bones. And it was meant to, uh, to be... Uh, it's depicted at the bottom of the cross that Jesus is on, and it's meant to be the resurrection of the new life. And so when somebody would die, uh, sea captains would indicate it with a skull and crossed bones to say he's now reborn in another world or whatever. But soon it came to be known as death. And then, uh, uh, But nowadays uh, it's very fashionable, and this is just over the last you know, 500 years or so. The skull and crossbones, of course, is a very trendy, popular image to put. Uh, there's foods and, and drinks that they put the skull and crossbones on to, to get you all excited about it because it feels naughty. And so if you want something that goes for 10,000 years, you have to fundamentally think, you know, do, do you do it in terms of pictures or uh, in, in how impressive do you make the art because you don't want to attract people to it and make it like a tourist attraction. It's a fascinating, uh, a fascinating discussion. And it, uh, the reason I bring it up is because 12,000 years is as far back as our historical record goes, full stop. Like beyond that, like we just we just can't see any real indication that 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 we're, that we're humans as we know ourselves in that one in that one stretch. And we this was built by hunter gatherers, you know. And the 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 thought was the cities followed the farms, and this is where probably a religious structure. This is where people showed up to pray or do whatever, and you know went about their thing. But it's huge and it's complex and you had to get people who are planning very very far along to be able to build this thing and maintain this thing and at some point like eight thousand years ago thing got buried under which you know there's a lot of interesting things that happened when you look at when you know the ice age started to end and you may have had some flooding in other places that you know cataclysmic change that happened very quickly where you know we accelerated right after but it was calamitous but for some reason the survivors went on but you know here's this thing that got buried did it get buried because they're angry at the gods i don't know but you know this is this is a thing that's so you know the the one of the oldest cities we know of is jericho because you keep digging down you find older older sediments there but finding something this sophisticated this advanced this is you know this is on par with something the mayans were doing ten thousand years later eleven thousand years later yeah, that's uh, in the podcast they put to put ten thousand years in perspective. They said that ten thousand years ago, the hot new technology was agriculture. <laughs> that's what we were excited about. Yeah, so uh, wide, wide range of discussion here, but giant planets, Earth-like planet. I mean, could be solid ground, would be effing cold. 
out there, maybe out there in the edge of our solar system, which is something that we could send probes to and visit in our lifetime, you know, could be a place to live. Who knows? Keep, like, keep um, in mind also, I mean, it could even be, and I, I don't know if this is too outrageous to even think of, but if you, once you, once you remove the restriction of, of our stupidly small lifetimes, all of a sudden something as nutty as like a, a mass drive where you, you hop on the planet, you build your culture you uh, let's say energy is not a problem. You have some kind of unlimited, virtually unlimited resources. Then all of a sudden, you you land on this planet and you just you know keep shooting rocks out of it from the butt and you just take it on a you start it on a trajectory uh, and you you drive the planet around would not be the uh, well, I guess it is a ridiculous crazy idea, but it's within the realm of possibility. Yeah, you you know, and the the course of thing is is by the time we're able to do that, we'll have a much better way to do it. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Good yeah. point. <laughs> you know, it's Jules Verne, like, if we build a big enough cannon, we might be able to get into space. Exactly, yes. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, do you want to do uh, uh, just a really quick aside? Um, rumors have abounded that Google is going to be investing in Virgin Galactic. They've already acquired a satellite company, and Google has been making more investments in the space, in, in the space, like how I called that there, Facebook buys Oculus because Mm -hmm. Facebook says Facebook does things like Facebook goes and buys Instagram because Facebook says we may not be the hip cool thing forever but we've got a ton of cash so we'll buy this hip new thing they buy Instagram along comes WhatsApp they buy WhatsApp because they're like you know what we want to be in this space this is where we need to be and maybe we're not going to make it into Facebook we'll be something else they see Oculus. They look at this company that's building these incredible virtual reality systems that, that looks like they finally solved the problem, make it really good. And Facebook says, we want to get into that space. That's weird. Apparently, it's just me talking alone right now as we have internet connection problems that dropped out both Justin and Andrew at the same time. And meanwhile, there we go. Both of them were trying to recreate everything. This is what I've always wanted, beautiful people. I've always wanted all my co-hosts to just vanish all at once so that I could take over weird things, talk to you about how I feel. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'm going to try something difficult. I'm not going to edit this out. And instead, I'm going to talk to you guys about – oh, look at that. The internet did go out for me. So I'll enter – I'm actually going to jump over to Wi-Fi, which might be a terrible, terrible idea. But it'll probably work because it looks like the other – uh, the other things are still streaming. <clears throat> Actually, no, it looks like uh, two out of three are disconnected here. So we'll see. We'll see where that goes. But in the meantime, I will say that there's a fantastic article talking about the acquisition of, of Facebook uh, taking over Oculus. Uh, Wired Magazine did a whole article on that and about how um, almost surprised everyone were. They, everyone who did the Oculus experience, you know, fell deeply, deeply in love with it. And, um, you know, they thought that being acquired and having an infusion of billions and billions of dollars of cash would only make things better. And they were, uh, it seems like a lot of people were honestly surprised when there was so much backlash just because, you know, Facebook is Facebook and therefore everything's got to suck. Uh, let's see, I'm going to click troubleshoot problems on this one and see what happens. I've never actually used the troubleshooting problems thing and had it just work automatically so i might have to actually go back on my promise and edit this stuff out which would be a really bummer because this is something that uh, we always try to make the weird things podcast as smooth as possible for you guys so that uh, 
so that you get as close to the authentic experience of being here live as possible. Um, Yep. Because the Facebook says, man, we'll spend $2 billion because if this becomes the new TV, we want to be right there when this happens. Google, as we know, is everywhere. They're showing us, you know, self-driving cars, which, you know, are lovely, wonderful. You know, will they be the ones to actually deliver them and make them happen remains to be seen. And, you know, it's funny. There was a, a criticism of the, uh, the Google car, like going on a drive, you know, a test drive in Mountain View. They realized that it's like it's because they have all of Mountain View in the memory of the car and all that. It's kind of like almost just going on a track in Disneyland. You know, because it's like it's 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 not it's it, you're not going to pop that car in the middle of, you know, Flagstaff in the next few years and have it behave as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's a controlled environment. Uh, I, I, I do feel like it will feel very weird at first. It's going to be a hard sell and uphill battle for Google to make people feel good about getting rid of things like a steering wheel. Uh, but I got to feel like at the end of the day, um, you know, give, give them a yeah. year. Uh, after, the first year, it will be a novelty that they have zero fatalities, zero accidents. The second year, it'll be like, wow, look at that. They had one fender bender. The third year, around the fourth year, when, when we have another situation like the Tracy Morgan uh, disaster, uh, at some point, it'll, 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 it's going to become obvious to everyone that it's I, like, Trusting ourselves with driving is one I, I, of the dumbest yeah. things we can do. Yeah, I'm sure. I guess my point is like I think that it, it's a, it's an interesting idea. It's still a very much R and D kind of thing, you know, sort of phase, which is great. It should be, but it, it's a it's not a product as much as this is a concept that we've taken to a certain point. But any point, point is it's exciting though. They're getting all these places, and now they're getting into the space because they're trying to make a big bet on the future. They want to say, okay, how we make our money today ain't going to be how we're going to make our money ten years from now. And where is there going to be a lot of money being made? And now between the satellite stuff, which plays a lot into what they're already doing, you know, the Project Loon providing Internet. And then now with the idea they may be investing in Virgin Galactic, the idea that they're trying to get into make a play for space because they think this could be a be a very, very, very big frontier. And that's exciting. I guess that's what my point is, is you have these massive companies, these giants that are spending tremendous amounts of money in this area. Uh who knows? And so we say, what, what's, you know, you've got, you know, the, the self-driving car, which is a wonderful piece of amazing technology that came out of the Google X labs. What happens if the Google X lab says, you know what, let's, let's spend a hundred million dollars on warp drive and to see if it is even remotely possible. Let's see if we try to do these things. So our flying cars, like Elon Musk said at a press conference said, Oh yeah, we could make a flying car. Everybody knows the real problem is it's too noisy. Yeah, that's I mean, that was was holding me back personally. I mean, yes, I mean, yes and no. I mean, to be honest, that is that is a not insignificant. You're talking about the Mahler Skycar folks. Well, like Musk talking about doing their own. Yeah, the Mahler's like vaporware, but yeah, yeah. Um, but Musk was saying that like you know for him and like he could you know, make a VTOL type car or something to that effect. But said and I, yeah, he was right. The noise is a big thing, and that's how how far he said like oh no, energy requirements stuff like that and stability. You know, we could we could we could build it. It'd just be so loud. Your neighbors might be upset, but if we can solve that problem. 
I just love, I love just what's trivial to him, you know, and I'm like, I'm like going, how do I fold up these cardboard boxes to get them into the dumpster? (laughs) Gentlemen, do you want to do picks? Yeah. I got a weird pick for you. How Uh, appropriate. I'm going to go, I'm going to give a pick that I inadvertently appeared on. Uh, Let me see if I can get this URL right. Um... Yeah, no, I don't have it right. Uh, let's see. Here, somebody else go first, and I'll have mine as soon as I get a URL for you. All right. I'm going to do two picks because it's my prerogative. First one's a pick. It's a soft pick because it's hard to get hold of. Um, I don't know what that meant. I've been geeking out about this on Twitter, and uh, I have, a, I have a, quite a collection of pop-up books now. It's an addiction. And you can still find copies of this used. It's called The Most Amazing Science Pop-Up Book. And what I loved about it, like I heard it sounded kind of cool, and I got it. And I love the idea when you open something up and you're just filled with sheer delight. And this was the case. And, like, I love things that push it. So this is a book to explain science. You open up the first page. And I went right past this the first time because nothing popped out at me, excited me. And then I went back and I looked at it, and I realized what this is. I thought it was like a pull-out little record that you could put on a record player and try to do your own. But no, it's actually a record player. Oh, my God. into this pop-up book. Functional fl- record functional. player? Uh, oh, okay, for, for, for folks who are, who are uh, audio only, uh, 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 picture, picture, you open a page, and there's uh, on the page is, is you know, a, a Mylar uh, record. But then you, you fold up a piece of paper uh, on it, which has a little needle on it, that Andrew has now placed inside the groove. And you just move it by hand? Yeah, I'll try to get this to work. It's it's the the needle's not as sharp as it can be, but it it plays. Let me um, turn this up. Let me yeah, yeah let me. Uh, and do you have to? Is there a hand crank to keep it even, or you just kind of move it I, around I with your finger? With you, you hand spin it. Okay. Um, This thing is like 20 years old, too, so. <laughs> Wait, is it 20 years old? Eh, like maybe 15 or so. I don't know. I have to hold on. I... Oh, my God! It's so, anyhow, I gotta, it's hard to do it here, but it's plain Mary Had a Little Lamb, which was the first recorded thing ever. So there's a record player in here. I could probably sharpen the needle and make it better. It's a, you know, it's a paper record player, the plastic record that spins. I turn the page. And there's a compass. I don't quite haven't figured this out, so it may be missing something here. Um, but anyhow, you turn the next page, and uh, there's a microscope, Brian, an actual working microscope in here that you put an object on here, and it, so it's like a uh, kind of an upside down U-shaped thing with two lenses. You put a thing on the platform. You put light in th- below there. You squeeze this, and it up lowers and raises it. So it's a pop-up microscope. You turn the page, and there is a camera obscura. For those of you who aren't familiar, it's a lens that projects onto kind of a, uh, a, a translucent material. So if before we had cameras with film, you could actually look at things and do tracings of actual very realistic things. So it's a pop-up camera obscura. Next page here is an actual sundial. That, what, cool. what is this called? What's the title of the book again? The Most Amazing Science Pop-Up Book. Turn the next page, and there is a kaleidoscope that you can spin. And I'm gonna, we'll give you our little, uh, our little. Oh, here we go. Here. Let me take that full screen on here. 
That's so good. That's rad. That is amazing. So you got a kaleidoscope, and then you know what? You've got a periscope here. So there's a pair a pop open periscope inside of there. Oh my gosh. Um, which looks through the back of the book. Oh, oh there it is. We see it. That's, That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> okay, so there's a periscope in there. So absolutely amazing, right? How much do those that you said they came out twenty years ago? How how much so, do those go for now? You can get them for like, you know, like you still get them for, it was 1994, so it's 20 years ago. You can get these for like a couple bucks on Amazon. I've been buying up a few of them to try to get a complete one. Wow. Um, but there's, uh, there's quite a number of them. And then they came out with a sequel, and I just ordered another one because this is missing two of the awesome ones. It came out with Beyond Amazing, okay? And so this one has, open this up here, there's a, uh, it comes with a, an hourglass that you can pop into here. And all of a sudden, there's an hourglass, this pop-up thing that you know, hourglass slides into, which is amazing. I'm going to go to the next page. Your audio listeners are going to love this. It's missing here is actually uh, a pair of, like, fold-up binoculars, okay? So um, I can't wait for that. Here's a zoetrope. So, you know, the zoetrope where you spin it and you see – see if I can get that to work. Like rudimentary this. animation, right? What's that? Is this, like, the rudimentary animation? Yeah. So, oh, wrong side. <laughs> see if I can get that the, zo- the zoetrope. Oh, let me aim at the right thing. <laughs> I'm trying to aim a a the, z- the zoetrope through here. That that may be more complicated than. Yeah. What what what, what would it do? It it's basically you look through there and it's got on. You got a disc on the opposite side of the disc. It has a thing that changes the guy in a ball. Got it. It's, and so it's got a reflective split. surface. So you look yeah, back you on it. Yeah, aim at the mirror and it reflects underneath it as you spin it. So that's what a zeotrope is. It's like one of the first film things. Here was a telephone. I didn't get the telephone. And what it is, it's like basically pop open little tubes that you connect via, I presume, would be string. Because I don't know how else that would work. And you can do that talking. Next page here is a scale with a little slider that you can adjust for that. And you're like, you know, what more? What more could we want? Well, Brian, Justin, mm-hmm. you know what? How about doing advanced computations faster than many calculators can with your own pop-up abacus? Oh, my God. That really is a full-on abacus that works. Full-on abacus. So, That's so this bad. is Beyond Amazing Six Spectacular Science Pop-Ups. That's the sequel to... the most amazing pop-up book and so you can get these you know you can get them used on amazon for like plus shipping for like 10 bucks 12 bucks or something they're they're delightful they're just the they're filled with a bunch of science facts and really cool things to play out and pull on and interact with so those are my picks that is awesome uh i found i found the link i i guess i get i, I got one thing i'll plug real quick that i'm reading i don't i don't it's it's good uh i'm reading the poisoner's handbook which i think is really interesting uh, it, it walks through all the different poisons, and it's really about the birth of forensic science because it used to be 100 years ago. There was no way to, uh, to, to know if somebody poisoned you. You had no idea. Chloroform? I don't know. You know, arsenic? I don't know. And, uh, uh, but then it, it – uh, and the job of coroner used to be 
a politically elected job. So nobody was a scientist who was a coroner. They were all – and they walk in. They were like, um, looked like a brain aneurysm. And that's what they write down. And there was a lot of graft and you know, cops telling people to just write this down as a suicide or something. I don't know and then because they were getting paid off. Uh, but the other thing I wanted to plug was something that I apparently made an appearance in that I had no idea about. Uh, luckily, it turns out Fact to be something – it, 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 it luckily turns out to be something that I could get behind. Um, the the skeptical channel Thunderfoot on uh, YouTube makes uh, he does he, he's he's listener supported. He has a little Patreon. Uh, that's Thunder F zero zero T. So spell Thunderfoot with two zeros. Uh, he has apparently started off with like one skeptical video about the solar roadways, which we've talked about here, where he actually does things like okay, you're going to make stuff out of glass. Um, you know, let's you claim that the you know glass is is in all instances lower on the hardness scale than elements of the road. So in this case, uh, for those of you watching live, we're watching him take a piece of asphalt and uh, and rub it against some glass and show how it just carves up the glass. And he's like, "This is this is a bad idea." And um, you know, he breaks down you know the, the actual energy costs and a, a bunch of other stuff as well. Uh, very very extensive, well thought out. Uh, comparisons that he does that this video that we're looking right now this is like the third or fourth one he's done because apparently the solar roadways folks have published an faq where they're where they're drilling them on uh, answering them directly calling him disingenuous on a bunch of things uh but in this case uh he's talking about the the idea of tempering glass i'll, I'll play just a little bit of this scratches. it just makes it more resistant to shattering but it also does mean that when it does shatter it does so fairly impressively like this hey look at that <laughs> How? Because side windows are made of tempered glass. This makes it very hard and very resistant to blunt objects. But when you fracture porcelain, it creates a very, very fine, very hard point. Solar roadways will be made out of tempered glass. How? I love it because like he's a delinquent throwing rocket window. So yeah, exactly. But 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 uh, but he actually points out that 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 their claim is to make this stuff out of the same stuff that we just blew oh, up. Yes. This is exactly the same material that you're proposing to make glass roads out of. And one little fragment of alumina could do millions of dollars worth of damage. Which curiously actually made me anyway. So he goes on to really tear him apart. But uh, of all the things to have my face plastered on, uh, the exact subject that I was railing on three weeks ago is a pretty good one. I'm pretty excited. I'm I'm finally glad that somebody was able to make that point for you. That that at your disposal was uh, a gigantic tempered glass demonstration of its weakness in terms of this application, and it took a British YouTuber to, uh, to put yeah. it over the top. Yeah. What about you, Justin? Uh, very simple. Game of Thrones finale tonight. Very excited. It's awesome. Uh, I I am, uh, you know, I was not, or I guess we, we the, the episode had not aired uh, last week uh, when you guys did the show and I was in Maui, but I loved last week's episode. Like, it, for it to just kind of turn into the last 30 minutes of, of the two towers, you know, like just a a super amazing epic battle sequence and it really just i can understand where narratively it left you know some people uh, unsatisfied considering i think that that's more on the weight of kind of how amazing the rest of the show is uh and and where i think narratively the stuff on the wall isn't exactly what everybody hungers for in the same way that we care about Daenerys and everything that happens in, in king's landing but 
in terms of an episode itself, was, I thought it was so amazing. I, I, I this just, wasn't Nikki and Paulo. You know, this was not. Yeah. Uh, what did we spit? I mean, my God, this is just. No, it was so good. Like I, I use the phrase like the, the, the wall plot has been uh, positively tantric. And this is the 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 uh, bone shatteringly uh, powerful climax that finally came, because every time we, we go to the wall, it's always like, yeah, there's something happening. There's there's forces coming. It's it's it, it, there's really a lot of trouble. And then for that, you could tell they spent a lot of money on really impressive visuals. It was a movie. It was a movie. I expected to turn into a TV show. Film director and who did the Blackwater. You know, they brought him in to go do it, and that's the and, beauty. And, of- yeah, and that's you know, it, obviously the comparisons to Blackwater are are there to do you know a, a second to last episode in which you focus primarily on one set of characters and everything. And I think that this this episode looked it matched my wildest imagination that I had while, while reading it or listening to it on audible. Whereas Blackwater for as amazing as it is, it really dropped all of its effects budget on uh, the, the, the ship elements and the, and the, and the firebombing elements and everything, which looked amazing, but everything that was on the ground combat was, you know, uh, a slave to its budget. And this, episode in no way ever felt like it was television it it felt like a movie and that was just amazing well and it makes sense too because you think most movies they spend at least 30 minutes setting up the characters getting you to know their their motives and initiatives in the first 30 minutes or whatever it's like essentially we just skipped the first act we came straight into the second act had everything look real dark and then came back with the third act amazing f- finale. It was so good. It was unbelievably good. And it wasn't until like halfway through that I realized, and it started as a hope. I'm like, oh, my God, are they going to do the whole, the whole episode at the wall? And it's like, oh, man, I think, I think they're doing the whole episode at the wall. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. And it just it's, – it's so it – was, it, it was – it's one of those things. There's been two scenes in, in Game of Thrones over the last two weeks that I've really just – just makes me love the show and and it is one of the hallmarks that separates great television from good television and that is you know the scene with uh Jon Snow and the current lord commander who has you know been a thorn in his side uh from from the beginning where they kind of they he has this moment that even he as somebody who doesn't like Jon Snow is like hey listen you are right but it doesn't matter that you're right because we're here <laughs> this now is where we are and, yeah like this is what being a leader and it's in his own way. It is like him saying, listen, do you want to be a leader? Then understand that me shutting you down in front of everybody was a part of that. And I made the wrong decision, but I had to make a decision or else we were, we're, we're all going to die. And that coupled with the scene with, uh, you know, the bastard of Bolton uh, and his father the week before where you kind of get this sort of touching, like, Oh man, like this, this, person who feels that he has been put upon and wronged by his his father like now has finally won his uh won his his, his, his valued uh, seat his his validation exactly his validation and then you're like oh like oh what a touching moment and it's like this is the most brutal character in the show this is the most like we have spent more the only time we spent with him is like the reprogramming of somebody in the most brutal and horrific way and we just saw him flay people not but five minutes earlier and yet you feel like uh you feel for him as he has earned his father's respect it, it's it, it really just shows you what the the narrative strength of that show and how much 
you know, it, it replaced Sopranos uh, this week, I guess, officially as the most watched show in, in HBO history. And I can only hope that that means good things for, for the future of, of just narrative television and what HBO does in the future. I've already got my preparation for after tonight's episode. Do not go through too much withdrawal. I've got my the graphic novel of the Hedge Knight. I still haven't read the Hedge Knight. Those take place like a thousand years before Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, and like, listen, HBO. Um, you can give us more True Detective. That's awesome. But uh, listen, um, if it ain't Game of Thrones, there George R. R. Martin has a large amount of content available yeah there's a lot of stuff that takes place in that universe that could be much more self-contained just, just give us more of that please yeah yeah hbo because i know you're listening uh quick side note for those of you guys watching live or if you uh, uh well i guess you're already too late um we're gonna do a early cord killers normally it's on monday afternoons instead we're going to do a post game of thrones cord killers and we're gonna flip it we're gonna immediately as soon as the finale ends go into uh, go into uh, spoiler in time, and then after that, we'll do a full episode. Exciting. With guest uh, Justin Robert Young. Who just found out that he's doing Cord Killers tonight and not Monday. <laughs> uh, oh, shoot. I could have sworn that, that you were the one that we discussed this with. Sorry about that. It's well, no problem. All right. I'm free. I'm good. Okay. Well, crap. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> no, you're not. It was, it was, it was, I guess it was Tom that, that, that we had a big back and forth because, because I'm out of town tomorrow is, is gotcha. the problem. Yeah. No worries. Okay. It's all good. Got it. Gentlemen. Yes. Is that it? <laughs> Is that so. all we have to say? <laughs> yeah.